It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Hi Mike. Hi Kay. Today we're honoured to be speaking with the Right Honourable John Gummer, Lord Devon, head of the British Government's Committee on Climate Change. Lord Devon was the longest serving Secretary of State for the environment the UK has ever had and has 16 years of top level ministerial experience. He now runs Sandcroft, a corporate responsibility consultancy working with blue chip companies around the world on environmental, social and ethical issues. He recently visited Australia in October, where one of the highlights was the inspiring speech he gave at the All Energy Conference, slamming the government's sad and disgraceful emissions reductions targets and called on Australia to use its renewable energy potential to lead the world. He received the only standing ovation at the whole conference. He joins us now over the phone from London. Welcome, Lord Devon. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Before we talk about the Paris Climate Change Summit, we like to start these interviews by asking how you first became interested in the climate change issues and why you decided to make it your life's work. Well, the original thing was uh, right back in the days in which I was the uh, number two in the Ministry of Agriculture. That's in the very early 1980s. Uh, Mrs Thatcher had had a series of uh, presentations by scientists and she was of course a scientist herself and uh, I didn't know that but I had been reading a good deal about uh, climate change and had come to the conclusion that it really was happening and that uh, human beings appeared to play at least some part in it and then one day I was asked to agree to continuing the same rules for the sea defences, which we had had for the previous 10 years. And one of the young people who was, uh, one of the young people in the group who were advising me said, well, of course, Minister, if you believed in global warming, then you would want to raise these standards higher. And I said, well, I do believe in global warming. And the very superior man who was in charge said, well, uh, you may believe in it, but uh, the Treasury will never allow you to spend the extra money. So I rang up Mrs. Thatcher, because I was working with her at the time and could do so, and I explained the situation, and she said to me over the telephone, uh, John, there are two people in this government who believe in global warming. One is you, and the other is me. Mm. We are therefore a majority. Go ahead. <laughs> and that's how... <laughs> That's how we started, and it was really from reading the science, as it was for her. I'm not a scientist by training, I'm a historian, but uh, any, any way of looking at the science at the time made this the most likely fact. 
not certain, but the most likely fact. And ever since, the evidence has become greater and greater. And every time we look at any new evidence, it uh, adds to the urgency. Mm, it becomes clearer and clearer, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. So we've got you to thank for um, Margaret Thatcher's visionary changes in in legislation. Well, no, no. She had already been convinced by a couple of very major scientists because she was always wanting to learn. She's a remarkable woman in that sense. She always wanted to learn things. And um, when she heard about this, she used to heard about anything that she wanted to know. She would bring in the world expert uh, if we had that to hand and would then pin them against the wall and question them <laughs> in a very tough kind of way. <laughs> As and you can at imagine. the end of the questioning, she would then decide whether that's something she wanted to take on board. And she did that with a, a couple of different scientists and, and came out really quite convinced. That's why we then got to the stage in which she went to the United Nations and spoke uh, explaining why we had to act on climate change so uh, dramatically. That's why she uh, managed to convince uh, George Bush Sr. to go to Rio uh, because he had no intention of going until she uh, convinced him. Um, and that's why she made such a contribution to the battle against climate change well before other people were doing it. I mean, it it always seems to me to be so disappointing when centre-right parties around the world don't understand that the leadership on this issue, both in Britain and in Germany, has actually been from the right. It's, it's not a sort of um, left-wing uh, idea. It's, it's been very much uh, uh, Mrs. Thatcher and Angela Merkel and a whole range of other people on the right of uh, politics that have seen this threat to the future generations and have done something about it. I don't regard myself as a good project manager, but even I get it and, and realise this is a project management issue. I can't understand why everyone else who seems to be better at project management gets doesn't get this, and, and it saddens me even more to hear you decades ago well, getting this <laughs> as a historian, let alone a scientific well, it, You're absolutely right. It, it is quite inconceivable the way in which deniers, and there are an awful lot of round in Australia, much more there than, than in Britain now, that deniers don't just think of the following simple thing. If all the air, if 97% if of the air experts said to you that aeroplane is going to crash, would you say, well, because 3% of people don't think it will crash, uh, even though they tend to be retired and out of the uh, avionics um, uh, scheme of things, I'm going to go on them and I'm going to send my children on that plane? I mean, you'd think they were mad. In fact, you'd probably take the children away and put them into care. Yes. And, um, and I think the figures are actually 99 point something percent on the latest. Well, so yeah, but I'm, I'm, you're being generous. I'm a, I'm a politician, or at least a retired politician, so I, I, never, I, never, I never overdo never. <laughs> you recently visited Australia, where we attended your inspiring speech at the Renewables Energy Conference. Which politicians did you meet with? And do you see hope that Australia's federal government will set targets that are actually in line with international standards? Well, I have considerable respect for your new Prime Minister, um, who brings um, 
intellect to the job, mm. and that means that he also brings a belief in climate change. And uh, therefore, he uh, has a difficult position because uh, his party has been nurtured with the uh, myths of the climate change deniers, and they've listened to people who are, frankly, not respected by scientists. And so he's got a conversion role to play. Uh, but I think he's got the strength to do it, and I'm hoping that when he gets to uh, deal with Paris, Australia will be no longer on the outside uh, but in the inside of most of the nations of the world. And, of course, we are encouraged by the new government of Canada because Mr Abbott's only ally mm. uh, among major nations was the previous Prime Minister of Canada. That's right. And, of course, the new Prime Minister of Canada, uh, Mr Trudeau, has already appointed as Minister of Science somebody who was part of the team that wrote the last um, report on climate change from the United Nations, and he's got a minister for the environment who mm. is very strongly determined to do something about climate change. So Canada should set an example. Yeah, and you and we are very hopeful. I, I can't tell you how many um, people um, that around Australia who are just breathing enormous sigh of relief um, and we've all just got this hope that it's not the same policies uh, in a different suit. Lord Devon, we've seen many, many community uh, climate change action groups develop around Australia, particularly around coal seam gas. It's activated a whole new constituency with farmers now actually working with Greenies in, in the Lock the Gate program and others. Did you meet with any of the non-profit groups here in Australia? I had uh, a meeting with some of them um, after... Uh, a lecture I gave at um, of the Australian National University. And I was very impressed with the enthusiasm, not only of the young, which one might expect, but some of the old stagers who were determined to fight for the future of the young. Very often seems to me to be true. It's the older people plus the young against those determined, ob uh, determinedly obstinate middle age. <laughs> That's what <laughs> seemed to be happening. And I was very impressed by, um, by, by what they're doing. I mean, the truth is that the big issue for Australia is to accept that the age of coal is over, that uh, we are in the last decades of coal. And the idea of building huge new coal mines seems to me to be economically nonsensical because although coal will go on being used, it will, be go, it will be used to a lesser and lesser extent. Mm. And huge new coal mines are likely to be a bad investment. And, and because I am a believer in the free market and because I believe in, in people making profits and uh, in order to improve the standards for everybody, it seems to me that anybody who invests in a large new coal mine will be automatically destroying such coal mines as there are over the years mm. because people are just going to use less coal because they know that that is the most polluting uh, way of getting energy, causes huge numbers of deaths, has a very real damage to the environment and 
does a great deal to create more climate change. Yes. And I don't know if you've caught up with all the news recently, but um, our Prime Minister said that coal remained a significant part of the global energy mix and would be an absolutely critical ingredient in alleviating hunger and promoting prosperity around the world. And then, as well as that, our energy minister, Josh Frydenberg, said that there was a moral case for coal exports to India and other places. By well, there isn't. Because that's I mean, cleaner it, coal. It, it was just wrong. Um, why do they say that when Britain is spending a great deal of money helping the Indians not use coal, but use uh, solar? And Mr. Modi clearly understands that solar is the way in which you get the energy. It's much more flexible than coal because you can use it directly when you have difficulty in, uh, in grid connections, exactly. which is one of the problems for India, because mm. about 40% of India's energy is stolen off the grid. That is one of their big, big <laughs> yes. difficulties. Now, there is a perfectly reasonable argument which goes like this. We're using coal. Developing countries need energy and we will go on using coal for some years. During that time, quite a lot of people will stop using coal. It's very likely that Britain will announce the end of our use of coal. In any case, we'll come off the coal by the mid-2020s, probably, something like that, even if we don't take more urgent measures, which I think we may well do. Other countries are announcing those things, even countries like Germany, which has long depended on its own coal. So <clears throat> if that's happening around the world, you can do the calculations. If countries which are using coal today are increasingly not using coal, if countries that want more energy are reducing the amount, the, the proportion of coal they're going to use, by using wind and solar. And if the price of wind and solar are falling all the time, it doesn't seem to me that it's very sensible to expand coal production. You may well say, and I think it's true, that Australia will still be a major coal exporter for some time, but it ought to think to itself that that time is limited because country after country will come off coal and go on to other forms of energy. Because even if they go on to gas, and gas is plentiful and cheap at the moment, even if they go on to gas, they will have reduced their emissions very significantly. Mm. And it's much cleaner, and it protects people's health. But talking about the moral case for coal is frankly only a statement made by the coal industry. And I can quite understand that if you're in the coal industry, you're scrabbling around at the moment because your shares have dropped very significantly. There's more and more pressure to disinvest in your businesses. And in the United States, you've got your backs against the wall. So I can quite see that you might snatch anything. If I want a moral case, I'd be much more likely to go to the Pope. And the Pope makes it quite clear that there is no moral case for coal. <laughs> As has every other major religion. Um... Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Muslims and the Hindus, the... The Dalai Lama and so on, the, the Jewish faith. And... Protestants and Catholics yes. have made it absolutely clear that this is not so. When businessmen start talking about the moral case 
in contradistinction to uh, uh, the churches, I know which side I go to. I go to um, I go to experts uh, in construction to build a house. I don't go to experts in construction to 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 to, to learn about philosophy. Similarly, I go to um, the coal industry to get coal. I don't go to them to learn about my morality. <laughs> and just um, recently, I think today or yesterday, there was a report from Bloomberg saying that India's thermal coal imports were going to peak next year and it was on track to be self-sufficient by 2023. So that really doesn't add anything to Australia increasing its exports as far as I can see. Well, it doesn't because it's in the context of other countries seeking to do the same thing. If you take China, upon which Australia has depended for its exports for a long time, China has a program in which its, uh, all its emissions will peak, even under its very conservative offering by the end of the 2020s. All the experts outside suggest that this will happen very, very much earlier. And uh, so <clears throat> if you're trying to think about digging a coal mine, which takes some time and which uh, means a huge amount of infrastructure, I'd be very careful about that. Yeah. You were, as you mentioned just before, a minister in the Conservative governments of um, Margaret Thatcher and John Major. Do you think that kind of bipartisan support that you had in those times on climate change action is missing in Australia? And how could we change that? Well, the, the, the big problem about climate change is that you need to have a consensus if, it is going to, if you're going to deal with it. And in Britain, we have been lucky enough to have had that consensus. And one of the reasons why I'm so pleased about Malcolm Turnbull is that in the end, this mustn't be a one-party campaign. Uh, there are two reasons for that. One is that it's much more difficult to be green in government than in opposition. So if you're not careful, parties are very green in opposition, then get into power, and then all the pressures particularly in Australia, which is so damaged by the way in which its uh, press is in the hands of such a small number of people. We have much the same problem in Britain, but I think it's extreme in Australia. So that any government that tries to do these things will have uh, very significant difficulty uh, with um, uh, climate dismissers like uh, Rupert Murdoch. So of course it's true that you need the strength of the commonality of view. So it seems to me to be important not to make it a party political issue, but to make it a consensus issue. And that's why education and, and working on people and being prepared to listen and then talk and argue and, and gradually, to, uh, gradually, I mean, as quickly as one can, to move to have a big center of the population recognises this is the science, this is what happen, is happening, and that climate change won't wait for Australia, because Australia is, in a sense, more vulnerable than many other parts of the world, as you've seen by the constant list of record temperatures. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you can't understand that the, the climate change is happening, why is it that in Australia you had to increase the colors on your charts by two because you didn't have a color for the level to which the heat had risen. I mean, it is an amazing fact that and, this and, and is you're saying, unrecorded height. You're saying that hasn't happened anywhere else in the world that you know of? 
Well, it, 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 it certainly is more extreme in Australia, but then that's the truth of your geographical place. It's true, isn't it, that uh, the effects of using CFCs on the ozone layer was particularly felt strongly in Australia mm. um, and why Australians now uh, wrap up in the sun in a way which uh, they never did before. Now, there's an example of science being disbelieved for a long time and damaging lots of people who could have been saved simply because people didn't believe it. We're in the same position now with climate change. Well, arguably far worse. I'm actually, I almost use that as an example where people did adopt the science and implement rapid universal global changes, quite the opposite of what we're doing at the moment. The UK government, uh, Lord Devon, has recently withdrawn or reduced some subsidies for onshore wind farms and solar PV. Can you tell us about that? Well, the incoming government had a, had a real problem, which was the problem of success. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, an apology for the apologist of the government because I'm an independent now, and indeed I would serve as chairman of the Climate Change Committee. Any government, whatever its colour, indeed I was appointed by a Liberal Democrat minister, a socialist first minister of Wales, and a Scottish nationalist first minister of Scotland, and a Protestant unionist first minister of Northern Ireland. So I'm, I've got a pretty independent uh, story. <laughs> but uh, there are two things to remember about where the government is, and that is that the Climate Change Committee said that we would need £7.6 billion between uh, the point at which we said this was three or four years ago to 2020 in order to uh, start and succeed in the first part of the decarbonisation of our electricity supply. The fact is that we're running out of that money because we have been so successful. So the budget, which was 7.6 billion, which is the money we asked for, so it was entirely independently fixed and the government accepted it, George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, accepted it every penny. He didn't reduce it at all. That now looks like a budget which will be something over £10 billion. And the reason is slightly, partly, because of the low price of gas, because we, we run this system on a policy of, uh, uh, of paying people for renewables, a price which is based upon the price of gas. So if the price of gas falls, you get more money. So there is a bit of that which comes from the technicalities of the system. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge bit, too, which comes from the efficiencies of renewables. Offshore wind uh, was thought by the government to uh, be about 27% efficient. It's turned out to be more than 40% efficient, and therefore, in efficiency terms, vies with uh, coal-fired power stations, which are very similar. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot more energy coming in, which we're paying for, and that's why the budget has now gone through the roof. So what the government set to do was to try to bring the costs within the budget. And that's not an unreasonable thing to do. You can argue, and I would, that the way it was done and the speed with which it was done caused people not to understand why it was done. And we're still waiting for the alternatives because there are some elements which they have removed because they weren't working. Uh, we had a thing called the Green Deal, which just wasn't taken up, so they are working on an alternative. 
and we shall then be able to judge whether the package which they put together is sufficient. But the difference for us is very simple. We have a compulsory target. The government has to reduce emissions, first of all, by 80% by the year 2050, and then according to very strict budgets which are laid down for every five years. And those are statutorily required. They can't refuse to do it. And we've got budgets right the way up to 2027. So I'm not worried about changes the government makes in subsidies, because in the end, it's not how you do it, it's what you do. And the outcome is necessary. It's in the law. The government has repeated its support for that outcome. There is no majority in Parliament to refuse to keep to the budgets. And so I'm not unhappy that the government has to look all the time at the most cost-effective way of reaching that outcome, which is, after all, the most ambitious outcome in the world. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and we've got Lord Debon, the head of the British Government's Committee on Climate Change, and we're discussing the Paris Climate Change Summit and climate change more generally. So moving now, Lord Debon, to the, um, the Paris Summit. Uh, the UK has a climate change target, I believe, of 80% emissions reduction by 2050. In the UN Climate Change Summit in Paris in December, what will you be pushing for? Well, we have a European Union agreement um, which, of which Britain's will, part of, is it? Uh, sorry? Britain's part of that, is it? Yes, Britain yes. is part of the European Union agreement, although our own policies are more ambitious than that because we have always taken, since my time as the Secretary of State, we have always taken the view that if you want to lead, you should do better than others rather than go along with the consensus. So we've always been at the top end of the proposition. And in the European Union, the countries most able to achieve these ends do more so that the poorer countries can do less. It's a very good example of international cooperation. So we will be fighting to get the kinds of levels of reduction which the European Union has built into the debate in in Paris. But the two big things that we'll be looking for is, first of all, a binding agreement which is strong and a step forward, a major step forward from where we are. But secondly, we'll be looking for a mechanism which enables us to review that in, say, five years on a regular basis so that if we are not doing enough to keep the world in a situation in which the temperature rises are less than two degrees, that we can then revise the figures and people will have to step up and do more. Because as you know, at the moment, the countries of the world have offered reductions which look like, meaning that the world would would have a temperature rise of something just under three degrees. Well, three degrees would be a hugely damaging thing, partly because we don't know how damaging, because it would be entirely uncharted territory, and partly because it clearly affects the poorest nations worse than the rich nations, and in your part of the world would mean sea level rises, which would be devastating for the small island countries that are already under threat. So you want to have an ambitious agreement now and a way of cranking it up. 
as people become more and more clear about the damage of climate change. Okay. Speaking now, say personally, as an interested and hopefully intelligent citizen, all the uh, mass media and political level stuff I see is talking about um, limiting global warming to two degrees. However, I also try to follow the climate science and everything I'm hearing boils down to the fact that it's an utterly unsafe target. Firstly, even at the most superficial level, uh, they're talking about, say, 50% probability of hitting the two degrees, which of course means there's a significant probability of exceeding that level. But much more importantly, it seems that two degrees is an insanely unsafe target on almost every dimension. So I'm talking about ocean acidification, glacier and polar melting, sea level rise, dramatic weather changes and instability, loss of massive numbers of species and human life, loss of arable land, loss of habitable land, including many major cities. Is this a valid interpretation and, and how do you see it? What are your comments on the reality of this and, and how we actually start to address that instead of this ridiculous two degrees? Well, you have, to, you have to do what you can do. That's the first thing. And one of the things that is a real achievement is that all the nations of the world have agreed that two degrees is the absolute maximum that we could allow the temperature to rise. Now, there's a reason for that. Under two degrees, all sorts of things happen. Quite a lot of the stuff that you've just mentioned happens. But we do know, as, a, as far as we can tell, that you wouldn't have the catastrophic changes which you might have over two degrees. For example, over two degrees, we have no idea what the ocean currents would do. We would really have no idea about some of the fundamental systemic changes that might take place. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if we could limit climate change to one degree, we would make the world a much safer place to live in and we would demand of people much less adaptation. But the real issue is that we are finding it pretty difficult to get the countries of the world, having accepted that two degrees is the absolute limit, to get them cooperatively to take the steps to make sure that we keep below two degrees. So it seems to me that if you are sensible, what you do is to get them to sign up to the very best deal you can and then ensure that as the evidence becomes clearer and clearer, you can constantly ratchet that deal up. And gradually, as other countries which have offered small offerings understand that they've got to do better, then we will keep the world within the two degrees and I hope increasingly move it downwards. But there's no point in trying to do one degree if you're in a position in which we're fighting for doing two degrees. And that's where Australia comes in. Australia has offered a very pathetic contribution to the world effort. And until Australia really faces that, it'll be difficult for her to help other countries do something better than they've offered. So my first aim is to get the best we can in Paris, have an automatic system that every five years or so we look at what's happening and improve it, and at the same time get Australia to offer something which is closer to that which every country in the European Union has offered, closer to some of the poorest countries who have offered significantly more. So we've really got to press our own people at home, not to allow everybody else to carry the burden and exclude themselves. 
Another issue is that we're actually running out of time for half measures, isn't it? It's now imperative that we've got to work to restore a safe climate as fast as humanly possible. And that seems to me it will need action at an emergency scale and speed. So we can we probably need to go onto a war footing in order to reduce the emissions substantially and reduce the temperature to a safe level quickly. Would that mean that governments would do what happened in World War Two? you know, set a time frame to manage and direct martial industry to change to developing large-scale technologies to draw down carbon, develop new energy, renewable energies, transport and food? Like, it would be a total transformation of the economy and lifestyle. What do you think? Well... I'm um, always uh, attracted by what I would call the the utopian solution because the fact is, you're quite right, urgency is absolutely the heart of this. We are running out of time and every year we don't do what we need to do. Of course, we make things worse because climate change increases as uh, the years go on. So if you don't act in this year, you have more to do next year. And we're increasingly getting to the time in which instead of a proper and reasonable transition from our present world to a new world, which would be carbon restrained, it will be a very much more bumpy and extremely frightening change, which we won't like at all. Mm -hmm. So you're right in principle that we should take this as an emergency. I'm not quite sure I like war footing, but the concept that this is so important that everything should be bent towards it is indeed the way we should be approaching it. We should think about everything. And one of the problems of government is that in most governments around the world now, there is an energy and climate change um, ministry, something like that, which concentrates on this issue, which tries to get things done. And then you find a transport ministry or a ministry responsible for infrastructure or a ministry which is concerned with agriculture who really don't see this as a priority at all. And so we've really got to get it as the priority in all ministries in every government of the world. Because unless we do that, then we will not be acting with the urgency that the problem demands. Okay. So what sort of advice can you give our listeners to make the biggest impact at Paris? Should we be aiming at the top to talk to the politicians or should we be building the grassroots movement? And, you know, you talked about the um, NGOs that you saw here in Australia and the efforts that are being made at that level. Well, I think in life it's increasingly a a matter of both and rather than either or. I think it's hugely important that politicians in Australia should recognise that there is a grassroots movement that is not going to be beaten, that it is going to fight, that it won't allow Australia to destroy the futures of other countries. And you've got so many local examples of countries which are actually buying land in neighboring countries in order to settle their populations in some of those islands because they know the island will disappear. Uh, There's a huge amount of local examples that show why this is so urgent. So the NGO community can do a huge amount to make politicians begin to understand that the electorate won't have it. But they've also got to make the politicians themselves begin to understand that they have a duty to 
fight for uh, the fight the battle against climate change. In the end, I don't think that decent men, like Greg Hunt, for example, I don't think that decent men want to be asked by their grandchildren, why did you leave the world in such a terrible mess? Why didn't you do what you could have done and instead invented all sorts of excuses for doing something different? Hmm. And I think you've got to bring that back to every single member of the Australian cabinet and of the opposition, because frankly, the last Labour government wasn't all that good in doing these things either. So it's, it's a matter of really bringing that home. And I've got also a, a comment I'd like to give to, to, to other politicians. Seem to me in Australia, if the Green Movement would stick to doing environmental issues and fighting for the environmental issues instead of all that baggage they carry along with them, then they'd have a much bigger effect. One of the problems in Australia is that the Green Movement has managed to make people think that having green policies means that you have to accept a whole lot of extremely outdated economic policies as well. And, and that's obscuring the big picture. Hmm. It's making people, uh, putting people off. And when you talk to some of the deniers, you discover they really are deniers because they think that what sensible people are asking for is like the rather extreme policies that uh, are sometimes put forward by uh, green activists. This is a moment for real reticence in that sense. We have to concentrate on the big picture. The big picture is the world is going to hell in a handcart. We've got to stop it. You stop it by concentrating on reducing the man-made emissions, and you do that everywhere, and you force politicians to realize that it's their responsibility, that they will be asked, not what did you do in the war, Daddy? They'll be asked, what did you do when you had the opportunity of protecting our generation? And I don't want my grandchildren to ask me that question, and I have, have, would have to answer, I didn't do enough. Mm. That's why I'm working so hard. Well said, to Lord try Devon. to make sure we do it. Okay, so we, we are aware you've got to go. One last question, if you have time, and bringing it down to that local level and what you can do. A local environmental group called Lighter Footprints in Hawthorne last week ran an incredibly successful forum. Hawthorne's in the electorate of Kuyong, which is uh, Josh Frydenberg's electorate. He's Minister for Energy and Resources and is, uh, it is one of Australia's most conservative electorates and uh, the Liberals in there tend to be regarded as future leaders. Um, Josh wants to be understood or seen as a leader who understands the science of climate change and did um, appear by video link at this forum. We also had David Caroli, leading climate scientist, and Professor Ross Garno and uh, Bishop Geneve Blackwell. We packed the hall. It was uh, over 400 people. There were people sitting in the steps on the steps in the balcony. What advice or thoughts can you offer ordinary community-minded people who are trying to focus their actions? What focus or actions can they do to try and get this message across to politicians like that? Well, I'm very excited to hear that, that example. I think we all have to start with ourselves. I think um, people don't believe you if you don't try yourself. Uh, and there are so many ways in which in ordinary life you can. Not to make yourself miserable, but simply even the simplest things like only boiling the water that you want mm -hmm. for the cup of coffee you've got instead of the whole kettle. 
simple things like uh, turning lights off, simple things like uh, not using heat when you a jumper would do, simple things like not having the air conditioning until you really do need it, all those simple ways of yourself having a, a lighter footprint on the planet. Because if you do it yourself, then it begins to be what the family does. Then it begins to be what the community does. And then taking a real part in the community, seeing the ways in which each community can begin to make a difference. In my part of Suffolk in England, we've now got a number of villages who have moved towards becoming as low carbon as possible. So they have worked to install solar panels. They've put up their own windmills. They've uh, started all sorts of energy-saving programs. They've installed energy-saving devices. There are now all sorts of very easy-to-run energy-saving devices. And they've made the community a much lighter footprint for them. And then I think you should never stop the pressure on politicians. My plan in Britain is to make sure that no politician goes for his surgery in any of the towns of his constituency without there being at least one person who comes to talk to him about climate change and what is he doing about it. Because in the end, politicians only react if they know that the public out there wants this and will go on pressing for it and that they'd better get on the board. Uh, there are a few the leaders, a few people who do it of their own will and volition, but for most politicians, it's the understanding that this is an issue that people will not let them get away with. And the problem in Australia has been that too many people have been able to make very vague and unfocused remarks, and people haven't put their feet to the fire. So keep your local member of parliament with his feet to the fire and keep your local councillors, the people running local government, with their feet to the fire because localities can make a huge difference. Yeah, and that sounds like very good advice. And finally, just before we wrap up, is, are there any comments or aspects that we haven't covered yet that you wish to comment on? Well, only to say we mustn't be depressed. I think this is the most wonderful opportunity. I think we're so lucky to be alive now because this is the moment in which the world has got to learn to live with each other. We've been, we've been through all those periods of domination, uh, of imperialism, ever since the first village bashed up its neighbour in order to get the grazing rights. So we go back thousands of years as an imperialist people. And we're now beginning to learn that each of us has a part to play and we have to play it with our neighbours. And if we want India to join in, then we can only do that if we're prepared to have a much greater deal of social justice in the world. If we want others to join in, and they have to because this is a global problem that only a global solution will be uh, effective, then we have to treat other people differently. And I just find it so exciting to see the world now as a partnership. And we have got to learn to live differently, not just with our neighbours at home, but with the people around the world as a whole. And so what used to be a theological concern about the fatherhood of God or a philosophic attitude about the brotherhood of man is beginning to be an absolute necessity for the survival of the planet. And aren't we lucky to be that first generation that is due to show that humanity can rise to this 
remarkable challenge. Mm. And that's a very optimistic view too, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lord Devon. It's been a very fascinating and informative discussion. We've really appreciated your time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for me too. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to this show and any of the others we have done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at bzetechshow. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.